0: Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm really glad you're listening. This morning, we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of times we don't like to talk about, and that's the topic of hell. Recently, in some different Christian circles, as a result of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, there's been a lot of discussion of this topic and what the Bible really has to say about it and whether or not people really will go to hell or whether hell is even real or metaphorical. There are a lot of these types of questions. And recently, actually, last year, USA Today found that 41% of Americans do not believe in hell. So I thought it'd be interesting to take this show today and talk about the issue of hell and what the Bible really says about this topic. Bob Marley, I think it was, said that we are not physical beings having a spiritual experience, but spiritual beings having a physical experience. That's very, very true. We're all spiritual beings that the Bible says were created to live forever. This earth, the way it is now, is not our final destiny. So, what does the Bible really have to say about hell? The Bible tells us that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's in Hebrews chapter 9, going to his eternal home, quote That's found in Ecclesiastes 12.5. I'll use a lot of scripture this morning, so bear with me if you're not familiar with that or if you're not used to hearing a lot of scripture. But I really just want to go straight back to the Bible and see what it really says about this issue of hell. Matthew 25.46 describes hell as a place of eternal punishment. And it also describes heaven as a place of eternal life. And the place of eternal punishment will be a place of eternal fire, Matthew 18:8, 8, where people will be tormented with fire and brimstone forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. So the picture that we're getting of hell is not a good picture at all. This place of eternal life, heaven, will be a place of eternal blessings, and we're actually going to talk about that next week. And it's going to be a place of eternal pleasures at God's right hand. If we truly are eternal beings, hell is a logical necessity. Now stick with me here and listen for a moment. God has to, by definition, be perfect. If he was not perfect, he would not be God. He is the standard by which all other things are measured. Now, if God is perfect, and he is, if he allowed imperfection to be one with him, to be unified with him, which scripture says will happen in eternity, that all those that believe in him will be with him forever and that will be one with him, if we as imperfect beings were in that unified relationship with God, God himself would cease to be perfect. So there needs to be an alternative place aside from God in eternity. Logic even dictates that. Now, that place, void of God's character, is what the Bible refers to as hell. Now, think about everything that you find pleasurable in this life. I don't care what it is, whether it's the mountains, whether it's the river, whether it's nature in general, whether it's a cup of coffee this morning, a delicious meal, you name it. Whatever you find pleasurable in this universe derives from the characteristics of God. Now, of course, there can be perverted pleasures, things that maybe God did not intend for us to enjoy. I'm thinking maybe heroin, for example. But we've kind of tried to manipulate what God gave us for our enjoyment and came up with something that really hurts us in the long run. If there is eternity for all people, and if we are not perfect, then we can in no way be with a perfect God for all of eternity. That would be logically impossible. So hell will be a place absent of his attributes for any imperfect being. So it's not just for really, really bad beings, but any being that is imperfect. Hell will be the complete absence of God, a place of all the worst pain, loss, agony, suffering, sadness, loneliness, fear, depression, and torment that anyone has ever experienced or imagined, and then multiplied exponentially and completely absent of all comfort reprieve and everything good. It does not sound like a very good place, but again, it's both scripturally discussed and logically mandated. So there are a lot of different perspectives on hell. The first perspective on hell is hating hell. Now, if you don't hate hell, you're ignorant about it because what I just discussed is a very, 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 very disgusting picture, and it sounds terrible. And if you don't hate that, then there's something wrong with you. If you don't hate pain and depression and torment and sadness and loneliness, there's something terribly wrong with you. I'm really glad that you don't love the idea of hell. If you did, you'd be a monster. We all intrinsically hate the concept of hell, and we don't want to think of anyone potentially going to a place like that. I hate hell. If you hate hell, you're in good company because God hates hell. That's why he sent Jesus, literally, to die in our place so that no one would have to go to this place called hell. In Matthew 16:18, we're told, "...I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it." Jesus himself was fighting against the gates of hell, saying that what he was doing on this earth was fighting directly against it, and that they would not overcome him. So if you hate hell, you're in good company. God hates it, too. But here's another thing that you need to remember. Just because I hate something does not make it unreal. I hate cancer. I hate rape. I hate war. But all three of those things are happening on a daily basis on this planet. Just because I dislike something or just because I hate something does not make it any less real. And I think what a lot of people do is they say, I really hate the concept of hell, So it must not be true. Well, I wish we could do that with rape. I wish we could do that with poverty. I wish we could do that with hunger or with the fact that 25,000 children a day die of starvation. I wish I could just say, I don't like those things, so they're gone. In reality, we can't do that. My perspective does not change reality. So like it or not, those terrible things are real. What I can do, though, is be honest with the reality of things the way they are and do something to change it it is important to remember that instead of just pretending like something we hate doesn't exist, I should instead do something to change the reality of whatever it is I hate. In this case, hell. Some people try to say that eternity is used in a sort of sense in both the Hebrew and Greek that it could mean less than eternity. It could be a finite time period. Well, if we believe that about hell then we would have to believe that also about heaven. In other words, there would not be any eternal life in heaven. The Greek word for eternal is aenos. And Greek expert W.R. Inge says, no sound Greek scholar can pretend that aenos means anything less than eternal. So the temporal perspective on hell, that it's just temporary, is extremely wrong. The metaphorical perspective on hell also has some flaws and some errors. So there are obviously metaphorical aspects to what the bible tells in different ways and specifically even concerning hell there are undoubtedly some metaphorical details But we can't say that about everything the Bible says about hell. And in fact, those metaphorical aspects, I think, make the concept of hell even worse than the literal aspects. James 3.6 says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, and it sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. There is an example of a metaphorical discussion. Your tongue is not literally a fire. But the pain that the tongue can cause, gossip and slander and broken relationships, are a lot more painful in the core and depth of our soul than any flicker or flame could ever be. And so when we look at those things and try to say, oh, they're just metaphorical, I think even if that were the case, and it's not, it would be even worse than a literal description of hell. Another perspective I've heard is that in the lake of fire, when hell is cast in the lake of fire, that'll be the second death, total annihilation of everybody that's ever lived. Again, Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture tells us of a literal hell that literal people will be in for all of eternity. You can't bank on the idea of hell not existing, especially if you're a Christian and you believe in the Bible. You need to take God's word literally as it's written and accept as fact The reality that there will be an eternity apart from God for those that don't put their trust in God. We can also rationalize it away. How could a good God allow it? God is so much on a different level than any of us could ever be. It's crazy for me to think what God should or should not do. He's different than us, and he has a perspective on justice that we don't have. For me to say that it's not right to send people to hell is about the same as it would be to ask a Nazi whether or not it's right that Hitler should go to hell, (laughs) okay? As a human being that has a sin nature, I do not understand the gravity of that, and I am in no position to say what is or is not a correct punishment for my sin. Only a righteous, perfect God could ever make a determination like that. So when people say, how could a good God allow it? That's a crazy statement. I am not God. I am not perfect. I have no idea what he can and cannot allow. And why or why not, that must be necessary. All right, so the perspective that hell is too bad a punishment is like allowing one murderer to decide whether or not the death penalty is just. So what does the Bible really say about hell? Hell was not created for humans, but for Satan. In Matthew twenty-five 41, we're told... Then he, God, will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." So the perspective here is that hell wasn't even created for humans, but for Satan and his demons. God's desire, we're told in First Timothy two four and in Second Peter three nine, is that everyone would be saved and that none would perish. God does not desire that anyone would go to hell. So hell wasn't created for humans, but for Satan. But as we were given free will, we made a decision to sin and to go against God and to achieve that same destiny prepared for anyone that goes against the God of this universe and that is imperfect. So God's desires that none will go there, but some will. So who will go there? John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So god's wrath the reality of hell is the truth for anyone who rejects the son jesus scripture tells us revelation twenty verses ten thirteen through fifteen and then chapter twenty one verse eight put it this way And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So going back to the concept of annihilation, I mentioned that a minute ago, but because we just read these verses, I wanted to remind anybody that's listening, some people would say that that lake of fire is the annihilation of anyone that happened to have been in hell. Again, here we see that those that rejected Christ will be in the lake of fire forever. So what about judgment for believers? For believers, we're told that we also will face judgment. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. That judgment won't have anything to do with whether or not we will go to heaven or hell, but rather how what we did on this planet will be rewarded. So those are some perspectives on What the Bible says initially about hell. We're going to get into it a little bit more in a minute here. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution here on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the issue of hell it's been in the news a little bit lately in some different Christian circles. Rob Bell recently wrote a book called Love Wins, and that's created a lot of controversy and discussion. I guess the discussion it's created is a good thing. The book itself doesn't have very much to do with Scripture at all, at least not interpreted correctly. There's another book coming out that I'd suggest you check into, and that is Erasing Hell by Francis Chan, where he's going to go to Scripture and really see what Scripture has to say about it. That's kind of what we're trying to do today. We're talking about hell and what the Bible says about this terrible topic of hell. So again, hell in Scripture is a place for anyone that's rejected Christ. Jude 1, verses 6 through 7 says, "...and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home..." These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave up themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Again, the concept of hell is an eternal fire. Matthew 7:22 through 23 Jesus himself says that God will tell people depart from me I never knew you those people will not be with him for eternity and in hell Mark 12:40 tells us there will be degrees of judgment and punishment for the lost does not sound good so what about those who haven't heard people always ask this question what about all the different people that have not heard scripture tells us a lot about how God will deal with that situation Romans 2 is a good place to start. There are some great answers to that question, but I would say that isn't a question that refers to you. If you're listening to this show, you do know. So the question shouldn't be about those that haven't heard. And what I do know is God is merciful and he will deal with those people in accordance with his mercy. And that's all we'll talk about it now. So what are the actual words used in the Bible to refer to this issue of hell? Well, the Bible has a lot of words that are used to refer to hell. The Bible uses the word sheol that oftentimes refers only to the grave, but in some places like Isaiah chapter 33 and chapter 66, it refers to an eternal and unquenchable fire. Another Hebrew word for hell is abaddon, which means a place of destruction and ruin. In the New Testament, the most prominent usage of the word hell comes from the Greek word gana, which referred to a trash heap outside of Jerusalem, a place where trash, dead animals, and the corpses of criminals and other refuse burned constantly. Another New Testament word for hell is Hades. And this is similar to the Hebrew word sheol or grave. And the final New Testament word used for hell in the Greek is only used once, and it is tartaru, which is a Greek version of gana. All right. The Bible describes hell as a real and eternal place of wrath where people will be tormented day and night forever in gloomy dungeons where both the body and soul will be judged with blackness, darkness, destruction, torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, anguish, trouble, sorrow, shame, contempt, anger, trouble, distress, continual and unceasing decay and a raging, consuming, unquenchable and unending fire. It will be an everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. Those are literally the exact statements that the Bible uses to describe hell. Not a good place. Jesus himself had a lot of graphic descriptions of what hell would be like. In Matthew ten twenty-eight, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 18:8 through 9, Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two and to be thrown into the fire of hell. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells the religious leaders of his time, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? These people were hypocrites. They were religious leaders that were forcing people to do certain things that they weren't willing to do themselves. They were not living the way God had called them to. And Jesus said, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In Matthew thirteen forty through 42, Jesus says, As the weeds are pulled up and burn in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. All who do evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. And that's the question that comes to my mind this morning. Have we understood all these things or are we going to follow Rob Bell's example and try to explain them away or wiggle out of them? If you believe the Bible, the Bible is very clear about this issue of hell. Jesus finally goes even more graphically than anyone else in all of Scripture and gives an example of hell or a description of hell that should terrify us all. He says in Mark 9:48 that hell is a place where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. What he meant by that was it is a place where the decomposition of the body will never cease and where the pain of the fire that we are engulfed in will never end. So this place is not figurative at all. From Jesus' own mouth and from his own perspective, this is a literal place of pain and torment. And in Matthew 25, he says that it will be eternal. And in Luke 16, Jesus says that hell is a place that has real people in it. In Luke 16, 22 through 28, we're told of a rich man that went to hell and... Lazarus a poor man that went to heaven and a lot of people quote this as a parable in reality it was a story Jesus never said this was a parable but he said it was a story of a real man that had really gone to hell and it was not a great thing so what's God's heart hell is terrible and he's doing anything he possibly can to save people from hell so what is God's heart about this whole issue of hell Well, heaven is talked about 25 times more often in the Bible than hell is. A lot of times growing up I heard people say, the Bible talks a lot more about hell than it does about heaven. That's just flat out not true. Heaven is talked about 25 times more often in the Bible than hell. Eternal life is also mentioned 22 times as often as eternal punishment. So the Bible talks about heaven 25 times as often as it talks about hell, and it talks about eternal life 22 times as often as it talks about eternal punishment. So we can see in God's word, the Bible, that God's heart is much more focused on heaven and on the eternity that people can spend with him there. And he does not desire that anyone would perish and end up in hell. Even though some will, he does not desire that any would the main idea is that God doesn't want anyone to perish, and He does want everyone to come to Him. That is the desire of His heart. And He is passionate about heaven, and He is passionate about saving the lost, and He is passionate about having a relationship with you. Now, let's think about Pascal's wager for a moment. And as I've debated atheists in the past, they always say, Oh, it's a terrible proof for God. And if that were supposedly a proof, quote unquote, for God, it would be terrible. That is missing the point completely. Pascal's wager has nothing to do with a proof or evidence for God, but rather what we should do in light of the evidence that we're looking at. If I don't believe and I'm wrong and hell is a reality, there are terrible consequences. But if I don't believe and I'm right, all that happens is I die. On the flip side of the coin, if I do believe and I'm wrong, all that happens is I die. But if I do believe and I'm right, then I gain eternal life with God forever. The obvious conclusion or logical deduction being it is better to believe than not to believe. If there is any possibility whatsoever that hell is a literal place that people will go to for all eternity if they reject the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross at Calvary. We should consider that as we consider his claims and evidence. We should look at that possibility and say, I do not want there to be a possibility that I would end up in a place like that. And again, God does not desire that anyone would end up in a place like that. All humanity stands at a precipice. We are on the verge of entering eternity. Life is so short. 150,000 people die every single day. That's about two people every single second. The Bible tells me that God does not desire anyone to perish and to end up in hell. So how should you respond to this if you already have a relationship with Jesus. Well, the Bible says that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you've already crossed over from death to life. That happened the moment you put your trust in Christ and asked him to forgive you and to come into your life. So fear of hell should never cripple the believer. In fact, 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The obvious implication is that as a believer that loves God, you do not have any reason to fear his punishment. Okay, his discipline is a different issue, but that has nothing to do with hell. So walk in that security. You've already crossed over from death to life, right? You already have eternal life. That is your relationship with God. So walk in that security. Don't underemphasize the issue of hell and don't ignore it. A lot of people completely Underemphasize hell. They pretend like it's not even an issue and I'm going to act and live my life like nobody I know will end up in that terrible place. There couldn't be a worse perspective to have. On the flip side of the coin, we should not be fire and brimstone preachers. People don't typically come to God out of fear of hell. I need to come to God out of a true realization of my need for a savior and the fact that he desires a relationship with me. So we need to quit sitting around wishing hell didn't exist and start doing something about it. In love, we need to have the right perspective that hell is real and I'm going to do everything I can to share the hope of eternal life in Christ with those around me. Jude 1, 21-23 tells us to snatch others from the fire and save them. That is a good perspective for anyone that loves God. To be able to share with my friends and neighbors and co-workers and to tell them about the reality of what the Bible says in love so that I can then allow them to make a decision for Christ or against him. It's their decision, and I should not shove that down their throat. C.T. Studd put it this way. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That should be our perspective. I'm going to do something about this. So for all you Christians out there, if you hate the idea of hell, so does God. Now do something about the reality of hell. Start sharing the good news of salvation, the good news of what Jesus did at the cross, and how he rose again on that third day with those around you. This should be a major motivator for us to share that good news. It shouldn't be the only reason, but it should be a major reason. This should focus us like it did Christ. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We need to stay focused on the big picture, not on small issues, right? We need to be focused on eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, Fix your eyes on what is unseen, because what is unseen is eternal, but what is seen is temporary. I need to have an eternal perspective about this life. Now, how should you respond to this if you don't yet know Jesus? This shouldn't be your only motivator, like we discussed before. In Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, we're told that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So the concept of hell should not be the primary reason that I come to Christ, but rather a response to his love and a response to his kindness. I also shouldn't ignore the reality of what the Bible says about hell. In Hebrews 10, we're told that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Frightening stuff. You can know for certain today that you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus by putting your trust in him now. See, the Bible says very clearly that God loves you. He loves you so much That no words could describe the way he loves you. Once I shared that with somebody and they said, no, God hates me. And I said, no, God loves you no matter what you've done. And this man said, oh, I think I've heard that before. Well, he's just really ticked off with me right now. And I said, no, he's not really ticked off with you right now. He is showing you kindness and he loves you. And he desires that you would come into relationship with him and have the guarantee of an eternity with him in heaven forever. The problem is we are sinful. And again, like we mentioned before, God cannot tolerate sin. God cannot be in the presence of sinful people. And so something had to happen because that sin separated me forever from God. My sin and your sin separates us from God. Jesus became a man, God in human flesh, and he died on the cross. He took all of my sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future on himself so that anyone who puts their trust in him can have complete forgiveness of sin and stand perfect before God because of what he did, not because of what we did. So if you're listening today, I would ask you to make that step, to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins, make me the kind of person you want me to be, be my Savior and Lord. And the moment you put your trust in him and ask him to come into your life, Scripture says that you can be certain you will live in eternity with him in heaven and that you do not have to fear hell whatsoever. Now here's some good news to close with. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. He is in control, guys. Let's tell the world the hope that we have in Jesus. We're told in scripture that wide is the road that leads to destruction. But remember what God can do with wide roads. Remember how he intersected Paul's wide road and said, come to me. God desires to intersect your road and begin a relationship with you. You can find all of our past shows on eternityimpact.blogspot.com. That's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. And if this really got you thinking, I'd encourage you to go to Calvary Chapel this morning. They meet at the Gaslight Theater on Main Street at 9.30 a.m. Tell Pastor Terry that we say hi. I'm Nate Herbst. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear about a much better topic, heaven. We're going to talk next week about heaven. Thanks for listening. Have a great Sunday.